Good morning, my name is Ray Brandon, the pastor for preaching. If you would take your Bible and turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. It is good to be here in God's house today together um, with you. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. So uh, when I ask some questions, um, I, I like the fact that here at Northbridge I get responses. A couple of weeks ago I was preaching at CityGate. They, they're our daughter church. They're wonderful. They got a little learning to do. I, I, you know, I told John, the pastor there, and Cole, who's the pastor, because um, I would ask questions, and they would look at me like, are you talking to us? And so they have at the end of their service um, an exhortation at the end of the service. It can be an application of the sermon or something else. So <clears throat> I turned to Hebrews chapter 3. That says that we are to exhort one another, and so that really is our task um, when we leave this place, is to take what we have learned, right? <clears throat> we tend to evaluate the delivery and whether it held our attention and, you know, those kinds of things, um, but Scripture gives us a different task. It, it, it's really to look at what did the Scripture say and how can I apply that to my life, and then how can I encourage others? So for the exhortation, I said, rather than me... Um, exhorting you, what was it that you learned that you can exhort one another um, as you leave this place? And there were crickets, awkward crickets. <laughs> so like I, I resorted to like suggesting myself, you know, the kinds of things. So I'm, I'm thankful that you, that you respond and we're here together and, and, um, and, and preaching is that. Preaching is, it is very much a monologue, but there's a dialogue that's going on. In fact, there's a dialogue that's going on between the preacher, the congregation, and all of us with Scripture. So here's the question. In your small groups, what are some of the principles that you have been learning about studying the Bible? What are some of the principles? I, let, this, this, what's that? Okay, reading on the line. We've got to say what the Scripture says. Don't go below it. Take away from it. Don't go above it. Adding to it. What else? What else are you learning? Text and framework, right? That's really good because we bring some framework to the text. And, um, and, and so if we bring too much of our framework to the text, we won't understand the text. Also, the text, as we apply the text, where we apply the text is going to be to our framework. It's adjusting our framework. So we have that principle at the beginning and end. What else? Asking good questions, and that's related to the line, right? So you've got good questions and better questions, and then you use the line to evaluate the answers. And, and so, so these are some of the principles that you're learning. Now, Carter's here this morning. Carter, you know the question I'm going to ask you, right? Because one of the questions that we ask is, does, go ahead, Carter, does the text, is it in the text? Is it in the text? Well, here we have Psalm 51, and the beginning of Psalm 51 says, The choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in, into Bathsheba. It gives us the context of, the, of this particular psalm. Last week, we had the context of Psalm 46. And, um, you know, Carter should have, as I was, in, um, was introducing that psalm, said, Wait a minute, Pastor, is that in the text? Because I made an error. And, um, and I really appreciate it because um, um, one of you said, Hey, Pastor, was that in the text? 
And then I went back and realized that I made an error last week. And some of you probably picked up on that. Last week, the the sons of Korah, I I said that the sons of Korah in the psalm were a descendant of Esau. I went back and listened. I said it not once, not twice. I said it three times. (laughs) And that is incorrect. So there's four Korahs in the Bible, four of them. Two we don't know a whole lot about. Um, One we don't we know a little about, and one we know more of, and that is the Korah that um, we see that, that the sons of Korah come up in Psalm 46 and Korah in Numbers 16. The Korah and the descendants of Korah here in, in Psalm 46 that we covered last week are part of the Levitical tribe. They are descendants of Jacob, not Esau. So I, I stand corrected on that. Here's the thing that, that we, we need to see, and we, we see this in Psalm 51 as well, is that there's a whole lot of scoundrels in the Bible, right? So there's four Korahs. There's um, two that are descendants of Esau, one that is of Jacob. And we look at them and we say, what were their lives like? Well, we know the descendants of Esau. In fact, we're going to see a descendant of Esau in a roundabout way in Psalm 51. Um, they, they all, well, not all, but they, most of them um, opposed the work of God through the people of God. But yet the gospel goes to them too. And here you have Korah right, in, in Numbers chapter 16, who is a person who's a descendant of the promise. And what was he? He was a scoundrel, right? He was, he was, God brought immediate judgment into his life, but yet you see God's grace traveling through. And so you'll see this theme in the Bible. You'll see this theme in the Bible where you see that the people that God has grace on, because God chooses to have grace, because he is God. And then he, will, he chooses um, to bring judgment on those he chooses to bring judgment because they are in rebellion against him. Now, what do all of those people have in common? They all deserve God's wrath. They all deserve God's wrath. But God is gracious. So you will see these themes, uh, this theme of Jacob and Esau running through the scriptures. Um, Jacob, the son who God favors and gives grace. Is he deserving? No, he's a scoundrel. Esau, who is, is not a recipient of God's grace, but rather God's wrath. What is he? He is a scoundrel. We read Romans chapter 3, and we, we see that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. <clears throat> that is what this text here is about in Psalm 51. This psalm is about what we do in particular with our guilt. What do we do with guilt? That's a huge question today. What do people do with the guilt they feel? Now, there are multiple kinds of guilt, and um, I don't want to parse all of those and, and talk about that. That's not the, the issue today. Um, there, there, is, there is misplaced guilt. Um, there's guilt that we ought not to feel, but we do. Um, there, there's that misplaced guilt, and, and we have some of this that we're affected by. We feel guilty over things that we shouldn't, guilty for things that we shouldn't. But there's also plenty of, of guilt in our lives, guilt in the human race over things that we 
ought to feel guilty over. And so you have the the vast amount of um, the work in psychology today is what does humanity do with guilt? What does humanity do with guilt? And what, what you'll see in the Bible, and it's, it's, it's stark contrast, um, we wouldn't have put it in the Bible this way. We, we look at the heroes of the Bible, and the heroes of the Bible um, are not heroes at all. In fact, we're going to look at this psalm, a psalm of what we would say, this is one of the heroes, David. And the Bible seems to um, get really up close and personal with his sin and his guilt and what to do with guilt. If you read the, all the other literature, if you read about the, the heroes of the Romans and the heroes of the... You won't find the kinds of characters in other literature in ways that you see these characters here in the scriptures. The reason is the only hero is the hero of Psalm 1, the blessed man. And so we have some some context that we need to build around this psalm, Um, some context that we need to build around this psalm. Um, One is the psalms itself, so I want to go there this morning. And then talk about what is leading us up to this particular psalm. And then to answer the question that this psalm poses, what is it that we are to do with our guilt? Um, So first, what is the context of Psalm 51? Psalm 51. It is one of the penitential psalms in which, so there's seven of them. It's the most commonly known psalm, a psalm of complaint. That is, it is proper to complain to God about our own sin. That is, if you want to complain to God, complain to him that you are a sinner. The Psalms teach us that. Complain about your own sin. That is the complaint that we are called to take to God. There's another form of that, that is lament, right? So lament is, is a different kind of complaint. It's going to God and saying, these things are broken, and I'm broken over them, but I'm trusting you in them. The psalms of complaint always lead to repentance over our own sin. And so um, it is one of those seven psalms that run throughout the psalms. But more immediate, we see that there is this section that runs from Psalm 48 through Psalm 54, that there are these themes that hang together. In Psalm 48 and verse 8, we see that God makes a promise. He will establish Jerusalem forever. He says, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of God, which God will establish forever. But then what we see after that is a warning. So God says, I'm going to establish you. He's speaking to to Israel in, in this promise that we see in lots of other places in Scripture. I'm going to establish my kingdom forever. But in Psalm 49, throughout that psalm, there is a warning against trusting in riches, trusting in what we have, trusting in the gifts that that God gives to us. In Psalm 50, there is a warning against formalism in worship. And oh, how we can fall into this so quickly um, as human beings. Um, There's a warning about neglecting God's commands. Right? So, Um, Worship, as we are doing this morning, 
is, is central, but we can reduce it to something that's on the periphery, and something that is formal, that doesn't really have our hearts, um, that we come in and out of worship simply um, in routine, and we are not taking seriously the commands of God to love God, to do what he says. What we see is, um, then there's Psalm 51, but Psalm 52 really gives us a key that kind of unlocks this section. Look at Psalm 52 and verse 7. It says, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. That verse is both a beautiful and an ugly verse all at the same time. Because it gives us an understanding of truly the root nature to sin and to David's sin. See the man who would not make God his refuge. Right? Anything else, any other thing that we depend upon more than God, here it says that when we trust, that we, when we don't trust in God, when we seek refuge in other things, we seek refuge where? In our own destruction. There is only refuge in the one true God and in his salvation in Jesus. So that's the key to this section. And and the question is, how do we get there? How do we deal with this guilt that we have? Well, the answer is very clearly that we take refuge in God himself. Take refuge in God himself. So we're going to break down this psalm, looking at this topic of guilt into two sections I'm going to walk through it with a little bit smaller view, but I want you to see basically the two sections um, of this this particular psalm. So um, we see that um, in this psalm, we see repentance rather than remorse. That's the first section. And then renewal rather than reprieve. You see, what happens when we come to God is that we're not simply coming to God to, to get rid of guilt, Alone, but what gets rid of guilt is repentance. It's taking that refuge in God Himself. It's acknowledging who we are and acknowledging the only refuge is found in Jesus Christ, in Him alone. So it's repentance rather than remorse. It's one thing to feel remorse, it's another thing to repent. Um, Secondly, what we see is that there's renewal rather than. Simply reprieve, right? There's renewal rather than simply reprieve. Where the psalm hinges on this is is verses 9 and 10. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, in, in that, that's the key section to Psalm 51, It is repentance from sin. It is only God who can blot out all iniquities. It is only God that can renew and clean a heart and renew a right spirit 
within humanity. So that's, that is the psalm. Let's get a little bit of background to the psalm. Um, it is a psalm of David. It's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet goes into him after he had, um, after he had gone into Bathsheba. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And what we have is um, David, who was the king, and he had established his rule and his reign. And it was a time when uh, the Israelite, the men of Israel, were going out to war. And David stayed behind, which is unusual for a king. And he was on the rooftop of his palace. And overlooking that rooftop, he saw a woman bathing. And he sent a servant um, to summon this woman. The servant, clearly in 2 Samuel 12, tells who she is and that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Nonetheless, David calls her into him in which he sins against her and against her husband and against God. Um, but that would be tragic if the story ended there. But the story goes from bad to worse. Now, if you're not familiar with David, David is the one that God has anointed to lead the people of Israel. David is the one that writes many of the Psalms that, that we are studying. Um, David is one that, that is called a man after God's own heart, but yet we see his heart in this place. And the story um, goes from David the king who has, um, by God's grace and trusted in God, overcome um, enemies and foes both inside of Israel and outside of Israel and, and has brought Israel into a place of great prominence. Now he goes from this greatness established by God to this low, but as I said, it goes from bad to worse. Bathsheba was married to Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. Let me see if I get my genealogy straight. Um, a Hittite is not a descendant of Jacob. In fact, the Hittites are individuals that Israel fought against. But yet we see that Uriah, Uriah had converted to follow the one true God. Uriah the Hittite. Now, what do we know about Uriah? Well, we know um, quite a few things uh, about Uriah um, from 2 Samuel 22, 23, and 24, those three chapters. Um, those three chapters are at the, they're, they're a record, they're at the end of David's life looking back. And what we see in the middle of um, that section of scripture is we see this, um, this um, listing of David's mighty men. We got, we got the Bible reading for us. That's, that's, that's good. You're, somebody is like saying, hey, you haven't read the text yet? And so I'm going to take that on, on themselves. It's okay, Rob. No, no problem. We all get into that. Um, I could tell a story, but I, I will not do that. That's where my brain's going. So Uriah the Hittite, he is, he is one of 37 of David's mighty men. You think about that, like, is that just his inner group? No, these were, these were individuals that um, fought fiercely for David. They were loyal to God and loyal to David. One time when David was not able to go into Jerusalem, 
These men fought, two of them fought, broke the lines to get David a cup of water from a well within the city. They risked their lives in that way. They were valiant, valiant men. And what we know of Uriah is Uriah demonstrated his loyalty because David tried to, once um, he had slept with Bathsheba and she was with child, he tried to um, trick Uriah. He called him in and he um, Uriah, um, he said, Uriah, go home and enjoy your wife and, and be at home. And Uriah, men were out fighting, and so he didn't go home. And when David realized that he was going to be found out, what he did is he commanded Joab to put Uriah on the front line and then to pull the men back so that Uriah would die. It goes from bad to worse. Can you think about that kind of sin and the weight of that kind of sin? That's what this psalm deals with. But we see here in this psalm, and actually it is an addendum to this psalm, Verses 18 and 19 were probably added to David's psalm during the captivity. And they point to the one who takes all sin, who is the sacrifice once and for all, who's Jesus. You see, um, guilt is something that we have to deal with. All humanity does. But there's only one place that we can deal with guilt and we can deal with sin. And that is at the foot of the cross and in the empty tomb, in the risen Savior. He's the only one who can forgive. And here we see this pattern of repentance and renewal. Nothing else will work. The only solvent for sin and guilt is the conquering risen Savior. Let's read the text. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity. Cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, your behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, 
O God, and O God God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. So we see here in repentance, verses 1 through 9. First, we see the cry, the turning to God in verses 1 and 2. And, and David says to God, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. When David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, and And Nathan is wise in how he confronts him and says, you're the man, you have done this. And David realizes the depths of his sin. The first thing that David does is he turns to God. He cries out to God. And I would say that that's the the first step in repentance is to let go of what you have been holding on. You see, what you're holding on to is rather than making your refuge in God, you're making your refuge in something else, and that something else is destroying you. So the first step in repentance is to cry out. It's to turn away from those things that would destroy and turn to God, who is our refuge. For then, then we see that the next thing, to, it's one thing simply to cry out to God, but then it's another thing to confess. Confession is part and parcel with repentance. <clears throat> Look at verses 3 through 5. He says, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He's acknowledging his sin. He's acknowledging his sin. There's no excuses here in, in David. This is my sin. This is where I have sinned. And what does he say? He, he says, against you. And he repeats it, you only have I sinned and done evil, done what is evil in your sight. Now, now notice what, what, he's, what he's saying is, he's saying this for emphasis. Because we could say, well, did David sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Against Uriah? Yes. We, we could actually have a whole list of who David in this process sinned against. But David recognizes that even if he attempted to restore those relations, somehow patch that up, that it would be futile unless he acknowledges the one in every act he ultimately sinned against. And it was God. He's saying all of these things, when I sinned against these people and doing these things, when I sin in these ways, what ultimately am I doing? I'm raging against God. Right? That is Psalm 2. We keep going back to Psalm 2 because where do we see the nations raging? How do the the 
disciples of Jesus who write the New Testament use Psalm 2. The nations raging in their language is the cross. It's the cross. We, we sin, when we sin, we sin not only against people, but we sin ultimately against God. And so he's going to God. He says, I've done what is evil in your sight. He's acknowledging, he's confessing, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Uh, This verse here is repeated in Romans chapter 3 when it speaks about how we all have sinned, how everyone is a sinner. God, when he says that, is right. He is right in his judgment. Every person has sinned and sinned against him. And he says here in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This verse recognizes the, the personhood of infants in the womb. It recognizes that every person that is born, every person that is conceived... Is, is a sinner from the moment of conception, once they have life in them, that they are a sinner in need of the Savior. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he cries out to God. Here's the process of repentance. He cries out. We need to cry out to God. He confesses and names his sin. But then what he does in repentance is you can't just cry out to God and say, God, this is my sin. What do you have to do as well? You have to embrace God. You have to seek his restoration. You have to find refuge in him. Look at verse 6. It begins the process of restoration. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What does God ultimately want? He, he, wants, he wants us to know truth inwardly. And so he asks, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. There's this process in repentance in which God removes our sin when we come to him, when we find refuge in him. And he cleans us. He washes us. He removes all of the guilt. It is gone. The Bible says that it is separated as far as the east is from the west. And what happens when God does this in this way, in this supernatural way? David tells us he's not there yet, but he is seeing the hope. You see, In repentance, we have hope. The lie of confession of sin and and moving to God in repentance is when I do this, then there's no hope. That's why verse 7 of of Psalm 52 is key because what we need to, to see is, no, the way that we're going is actually the way of destruction. The things that we're trying to do and, and trying to control life and manipulate life and saying, I, I'm going to go this way. Well, the scripture says this, yes, but I'm going to go this way, is a path of destruction, right? right that, that's why we say, as Carter said, does the text say that? 
because the text is the word of God. We need to handle it properly. We need to understand the text. We need to live out the text because the text holds forth hope. And what we need, what the world needs, is they need hope. You know, sometimes, you know, people are so burdened by their guilt, they don't necessarily need the answer. In other words, the end, the whole end, they just need to hear in that moment right then that there is hope. And there's hope in Jesus. Listen to what David says in his confession. He sees the hope of restoration. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have, have broken rejoice. Do you see the hope? Is he there yet? Is he there yet? No. But is there hope? Yes. There is hope in Jesus. And he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Here's what the Bible says. That when you confess your sins, that God is faithful and just. God does justice in forgiving you of your sins. How can that be? How can God do justice? How can God do justice in this situation? And it's bad. We know it's bad. There's a broken home and a life. Right? Some people will say, and you'll hear this, it's popular to preach this, come to Jesus and follow Jesus and everything will go well. Ask Uriah how that worked out. That's what Uriah did. And what happened? He had a broken home and lost his life. But yet the Bible says that sins confessed. That God is faithful and just. How can justice be meted out? You see, we are living in a world of confusion when it comes to justice. We're living in a world that doesn't follow the scriptures when it comes to justice. When you think about justice, you, it, the, the solution to justice in the world is Jesus. Because here David says, hide your face from my sins. How can God do that? Blot out my iniquities. How can God do that? The only way that he could do that is if there was a square and full payment for the transgression that David committed. This will challenge our framework. Do you believe that Jesus paid for the sins of David and there was justice for Uriah on the cross? The Bible tells us that Jesus paid it all. And I think we have this example in Scripture to show us that there is no sin that is so great that God cannot forgive. 
when you think about the scriptures and you think about who accuses you of sin, who is it that accuses you of sin? Well, sure, the Bible says that everyone is a sinner. But what we see in Scripture is that there is one accuser. In fact, he's named that. And that is Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the accuser. What we see in Scripture, actually what we see in Scripture, is what was Jesus accused of? What we see is injustice, and this is, this is a pattern, is that we see that in Scripture, we see what, what, what is termed rightly scapegoat killings. And see, this is how in the ancient world, rulers would keep people under control, and we see that as an example. We have an unruly crowd. Well, if we can put somebody to death, that will calm the crowd for a while. This happened quite often. And we see it in Jesus. He was accused. He was found guilty. He was without sin. And yet, he took all of our sin. And yet, in what man devised as scapegoat justice, God uses to forgive the sins of the world. Is there justice in Jesus? Yes. Is there hope for justice in this world? Yes. Is there hope for forgiveness? Yes, because we find it in Jesus. That's where repentance turns in verse 10 to renewal. And what we see is that renewal turns into worship. Renewal turns into worship. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David is saying is that he has hope for renewal, and he sees renewal happening in his own life, this supernatural renewal, renewal that can only come through repentance. When we acknowledge our sin and confess our sins, God supernaturally restores us and then begins that process of renewing us. That is the hope that we have in Jesus. And look where it turns. It turns into worship. Verse 14 begins this worship section. Deliver me from blood guilt. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. Deliver me from guilt. Why? Because I'm finding refuge in you. And what does he do? And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. That's what we do here every day, that we meet together. We are singing the praise of God because we are guilty of sin, but yet we know forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. He's the only hero, and he's the one we worship. And so David says, open 
my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Listen, what does God desire in you? Is it you in this seat on Sunday morning? Is it you going to small group? Is it you studying your Bible? Is it all of those things that we tend to hang on as religious? No, no. What, is, what does he desire? He desires people who acknowledge him as God, that trust not in who they are and what they have in their riches, but find their refuge in Jesus alone. Now, when you find your refuge in Jesus alone, what are you going to do? You're going to worship him. You're going to study his word. You're going to encourage other believers. You're going to exhort one another daily. You're going to do good works. But where does that come from? It comes from a spirit broken over sin, a contrite heart. It comes by first offering yourself to God and trusting in his mercy and in his grace. You see, friends, that's what we do with guilt. That's the only refuge. Our refuge is in Jesus, in him alone. And he can restore. And you know what he does? What does he do? He deals with all of our guilt in the scriptures. He deals with all of it. You know, whether it's misplaced guilt, whether it's wrong thinking in our cognition and we have these thoughts that we're thinking these things and they weigh heavy on us, God begins to transform those things. He, he tells us who we are. He gives us a new identity and he continues to renew us. Friends, you can only experience the grace of God if you're willing to trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that we will be a church that will be faithful to your word. To continue to ask that question, is that what the text says? Lord, I pray for those that are dealing with guilt. that are weighed down, who have committed sin, and yet there's other things that they have found temporary refuge in that will ultimately lead to destruction. Lord, I pray that you would save them. Even today, even in these next few moments, lead them in the way you led David to confess sin, do something supernatural as you have promised. Use your spirit, use your word to free them so that they may walk with you in hope and in life and in worship. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.